podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from cricket's past? Well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. And luckily for you, season three has just started. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. Welcome to another edition of Wagon Wheel. We're over on Spotify Green Room live right now. Um, unless you're listening to this in the next couple of days on the podcast, or uh, it ends up on YouTube. So you can always follow us on Spotify Green Room, Jared Kimber, and then you get alerts. Or I think that works. I'm not really sure how Spotify Green Room works, but you can line up and ask questions. I see a few people already have come in to ask some questions, so that is great. Big thanks to the supporters on Patreon. So if you are in the, I don't know what it is, the middle tier on Patreon, you have the ability to ask questions for this green room beforehand. We haven't got as many this week, so I'll go through a few of them in a minute. But uh, thank you to those who support me on Patreon, because that's quite handy. If you get the chance to be able to do that, you get access to the podcast early. You get uh, Q&As with me. Just Jared Kimber Patreon, you'll work it out. Uh, but we just go to the Patreon questions first. Uh, so Raj says... It's embarrassing to see so many arguments on Twitter about the best team between New Zealand and India, and particularly Australian fans and Indian fans are disrespecting the World Test Championship final. Uh, look, Raj, it's a very good question. It's Look, when it comes down to it, I think Australians will find any excuse to downplay New Zealand uh, as a general rule. So I think we know that that starts with it. Um, but I can see you said, what do the Black Caps have to do to get some respect from fans um, of the competitive teams? Look, Indian fans are obviously going to talk up their team. So I think that's a fairly normal thing. So we almost have to put that to the side, even if they are the most fans and therefore the loudest fans. Um, you do have to put that a bit to the side. The Australian fans are used to beating New Zealand. So it's hard for them to see New Zealand as the best team, which I think is fair enough. But there's also, there's legitimate questions about New Zealand just because they hadn't played as much overseas as some of the other teams. I think they're a fantastic team. I think they have the best batting lineup and the best seam bowling lineup. Um, but I don't know particularly if they have the best all-round team in the way that perhaps India do. But they won the World Test Championship. And, you know, there are certainly times when perhaps not the best one-day team has won a World Cup. We don't always talk about it because it's not always convenient, but 92 Pakistan is a really good um, uh, really good one to look back on. Perhaps even 2014 Sri Lanka, although that was still a pretty good team in the World T20. But 
there's certainly been teams that I've probably oh 87 World uh, World Cup 83 World Cup 87 World Cup um, both of those the India and Australia victory so look there are times when the best team doesn't win um, but when it comes down to it I just think that New Zealand need to uh, you know win more um, uh, away from home play more away from home. Um, but they're a fantastic team. I don't see that changing in the short term. Uh, and if they keep playing the way they have for the last, you know, what, three, four, five years, for the next two or three years, I think it becomes very hard to argue against what they have done. And and the whole thing of, oh, they haven't won in Australia, it's like it, almost every team has a big hole in their game. You know, uh, South Africa were genuinely one of the best teams we've ever had in Test cricket, and yet they, they failed to beat Australia at home randomly. Um, you know... Uh, uh, West Indies and uh, struggled with Pakistan um, during their great reign. You know, we've seen these sorts of things happen before. So uh, I think New Zealand's a fantastic team. Thanks for your question. Uh, Will Cooling says, with Afghanistan officially banning women's sports, should international cricket still allow the men's team to participate fully? Feels like punching down, but equally alternative feels like condoning sexism. It, it's really interesting. I've been following this online uh, with a bunch of smart people kind of on both sides. I think that the first thing that is worth mentioning is that and I've mentioned this a bit on Red Inca before and, and on other podcasts and probably in my writing. Afghanistan got away with not having a women's team for a very long time. Uh, I don't know if everyone knows this, but they actually had one in 2013. By 2017, they did not have one. It probably shouldn't have been granted test status without a women's team. I don't think any team should be allowed to do that. Um, uh, it, we, we, a lot of people will be saying you can't punish the men um, uh, for that, but we're already punishing the women by not. Uh, by not them having a team, they're already pre-punished. Um, it's different than apartheid, but it's in the same ballpark. And, you know, you can argue either way for that. I don't know if Australia and the ICC um, banning Afghanistan are going to change anything. But at the same time, it's very hard to argue that they, they should have been playing. I do find it weird that, that now the Taliban's involved, that it's more of an issue than beforehand when essentially Afghanistan were getting away with an ICC sanction to not have a women's team. Um, but, you know, uh, all politics are local. The Australian cricket team is playing to their own fans and their own politics as much as anything. And the ICC is going to have to work out how to do this. But it's uh, I've just done a double century podcast about it which uh, will be up um, fairly shortly, or depending on where you're listening to this, might already be up. Uh, for me, it's just w Afghanistan's the greatest story that we've had in cricket, um, or, you know, one of the greatest stories we've had in cricket, if not the greatest. And it's hard to give up on that um, as someone who's been invested in their, in their journey. But at the same time, cricket's for everyone, and that's why we want Afghanistan to play, and that's why we want Afghanistan women to play as well. So I don't have any definitive answers on, on it, Will. It's a very good question. But, um, yeah, it's, I suppose there's a lot of shit things going on in Afghanistan at the moment, and this is probably not one of the high-end ones. But for us who love cricket, it's, um, it's probably having an impact on a lot of us right now. But certainly, you know, it's you know, in my thoughts a lot at the moment. Uh, we'll just ask another one. Uh, if, when India win the series, uh, will you do a bonus episode on Double Century about Kohli's greatest victory ever? Not since Ponting 06-07 have I seen a captain so hyped for a series. Ponting is really apt for Kohli. Um, I think they're very similar. You know, they've got this incredible desire to win. Uh, different kinds of people, but I think winning means more to them than maybe some other things. Uh, you know, everyone, everyone is inspired by slightly different things. Uh, and I think Vera is very similar to Ponting in that sort of win-only mentality. Uh, having said all that, I won't be doing an episode on it, no. <laughs> um, they've already beaten England. Ian Price says, I'm a Worcestershire fan. Um, 
but did the creation of the 800 franchises accelerate the demise of the smaller non-test counties? If the 100 develops into a money spinner over the next few years, could it, uh, could it become an income stream to support them? Look, international cricket is already supporting county cricket, let's be honest. On top of that, I think you, um, I think what you say, uh, you know, accelerate the demise. I think that's very fair. I think the demise has been there for a long time. I don't think people really understand what county cricket was. County cricket was bigger than international cricket, more or less up until World War Two. Um, the Ashes were slightly bigger than it, but the other series weren't. And even after the World War, uh, World War II, you know, you still had a lot of struggling international teams trying to make their own way. So I think with that in mind, uh, this has been happening for a very, very long time. And, you know, for, for if, if you're not one of the major test playing uh, grounds, as you say, there was always going to be a possibility that this happened. I think that if there is more money in English cricket, that might actually safeguard the counties to a certain extent going forward. I think having an 18-county structure, but then having a very good um, academy slash uh, A-level team, underage teams, and all that sort of stuff is probably still England's best way to do this at the moment. Um, they might eventually have like a Super League first-class structure as well, a bit like what India do with the regions which is also very, very interesting where, you know, you, you might have maybe four teams from England that play maybe three first-class games each. So you get to see the best first-class players up against each other outside of the county season. That might, might also happen. But again, that might, that might happen during the season, which affects the smaller teams. Again, it's very possible. But I think when it comes down to it, uh, it's very hard for smaller teams uh, around the world in any market, whether they be New Zealand or Worcester or ever, to, you know, um, make the sort of money that makes you relevant in modern sport. This is a multi-billion dollar sport and Worcester floods a lot and is a small place. And a lot of their, you know, that's just the reality, I I think, of. And they happen to be very, very close to another, you know, a major part of English cricket as well, um, you know, just down the road in in Edgbaston. So uh, I don't know is is the best answer, but either way... Counter cricket has been trending down for a very, very long time. The 100 is the, what, almost like a natural evolution point, I think, rather than um, anything else. And that's just, you know, the way that modern sport has gone. Counter cricket has not, it has not risen the way that um, other sports have. Uh, I think that's very fair. Uh, Christopher Hart says, cricket has an under-19s World Cup and then nothing. Should we have an under-21s, 23 World Cup for the best under-23s? I would assume that this is just, based on, um, uh, you know, time um, and availability. I think that rather than having an under-23s tournament, I'd be much more interested in, especially the teams who are not in the top, well, especially non-test playing teams, I'd rather see um, really strong um, uh, A-League being played, so almost like the minor leagues in baseball or the G-League in basketball. Um, where you have all the test-playing nations have an A-team that is travelling regularly and playing cricket regularly, and they are playing against the associate teams from, yeah, 12 to 18, say, rankings in whichever format of cricket that is. I think that would be better for everyone, really. Uh, You know, if you're a young, um, if you're a 22-year-old who's on the verge of playing for your international team, you know, going to play in Oman, um, you know, in the oppressive heat and those sorts of conditions against wily cricketers um, is really, would, could, could be really interesting for you, uh, as would be playing against Namibia. 
um, down there in South Africa, um, Papua New Guinea, all those sorts of teams. So I think if I, I don't think we need a specific under 21 or under 23, but I do like a sort of second tier competition. I think it's something that cricket misses a little bit because everyone has their first class um, set up, which is their own second tier competition, of course. But that's always, it's so limited. Like, you know, if half of Sri Lanka, you're just going to be on spinning wickets and England, you're just going to be on seaming wickets and Australia, you're just going to be on batting wickets that bounce. And you really, you, if you really want to develop your cricketers, you want them to get out and play in as many different places as possible. So I think that's what we're missing. Anyway, that's all for the Patreon questions. So huge thank you uh, to everyone who sent those through. I know we're a day early, so that's certainly why maybe not as many people came through. First question from the floor is Deya. Yeah, hi, Jared. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, so I know that you were at the Oval. Uh, so did you see Ravi Ashwin there? Well, he was at the Oval, yeah. What do you mean? I mean, I didn't catch up with him. We're not mates. We don't hang out. No, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, was he there? We don't have a YouTube corner at the Oval. There's not like a YouTube bar where we all meet up, where it's like me, him, and PewDiePie. Is that a YouTuber? I don't really know any YouTubers, sorry. That joke just died on me, sorry. No, I was, I was joking too, so... Uh... My real question is, uh, would you have picked Root for the World T20 if you were in the England camp, uh, given that he is? I know that he is not your most explosive T20 player, but like he is in such a good form right now. And maybe with the pitches being slow there, you might need I, a 120 strike player. Yeah, I think if you've seen my work, I don't really believe in form. So I'm not really interested in him being in good form or bad form uh, before a major tournament. Uh, I think you need senior players to win a tournament uh, like that. I think he plays a very interesting role. He can also bowl a little bit, but I'm not sure he plays enough T20 cricket to be at the top of his game for it. Um, uh, most of the guys that they have picked, well, almost all the guys they've picked, um, now that Snokes is not in it, are, you know, T20 specialists of one format or another, uh, sorry, of one way or another, uh, white ball specialists in that, uh, and for some of them, I suppose. But so I think it's a big ask to suddenly do that. Also, they've obviously been, he hasn't been in their plans for a long time. So if he hasn't been in their plans for a long time, I think it would be very reactionary of them to suddenly pick him. You've got Dawid Milan and Owen Morgan in the team. They both represent very similar positions, the way that they play. Now, um, you could argue that Joe Root's a better player of spin than both of them, and I wouldn't disagree. But if that was the case, they needed to get... Joe Root had to have played for a long time coming. Not not a long time, but he had to be back in the setup. I think it would have been a very, very interesting thing to just throw him back in. Um, I know he wanted to play, um, and he's probably a little bit disappointed. But it's, um, uh, you know... I, I, I think for me, I, I probably would have looked at Milan and Owen Morgan and just thought, I wonder if I can get away with both of them. Would it not be better off to have Joe Root to be able to split them up and then have a little bit of his bowling and have his brain around the camp? But yeah, I don't know if you just suddenly bring him in and then hope that it works for him. Um, but we know in 2016, he was a fantastic T20 player. I've said this before. Uh, you know, if you, I think he's a better T20 player than Steve Smith or um, Kane Williamson. Um, he just doesn't play it enough and isn't involved enough. And, um, uh, you know, throwing him into a World Cup is just really, really tough. But uh, thanks so much for your question. Uh, sorry, oh, there you are. Basker, is it? Sorry, I, you disappeared from my screen. Yeah, okay, there we Yeah, so Jared, uh, I wanted to ask a question about, I've been watching a lot of the test cricket, and then what I've seen is that the top order batters have kind of stopped bowling at all, and none of the teams actually pull them, so even Smith or Williamson and India, does not have anybody who actually pulls from the top order. And I was just wondering that in the 90s and 2000s, you had uh, these top order batters who all could bowl, so the number six would be like Yuvraj or Collingwood, 
who would be like decent bats, but they could bowl and they would get into the team. But now the trend is that you the, your number eight is a bowler who can bat a bit like Shadul Thakur or Sam Karan, who's not like the really the best bowler in that way. So is there uh, a change in mindset uh, that there are more specialists who are actually uh, being there or uh, is it just that the top batters don't want to bowl anymore? Mate, I've got so many theories on this. <laughs> First one is that everyone's a wicketkeeper now in world cricket. So everyone has grown up wicketkeeping. So I wonder how many of them actually grew up bowling. Um, that's a bit of a joke. And that, that, doesn't, um, that doesn't really count for the uh, Indian team. Um, but for, you know, Sri Lanka and England, New Zealand maybe, that's probably quite fair. Um, uh, there is... I think there's a few different things. One is that players do play more top-level cricket than ever before. And if you play more top-level cricket than ever before, you travel more than ever before. I remember talking to George Bailey towards the end of his career. He he basically gave up a year of Hampshire because he was getting, oh, I forgot the name of it, sciatica. Um, he was getting sciatica in his back from traveling in the bus. Uh, you, If you talk to Atherton, um, he stopped bowling because of um, uh, because of his back. Michael Clark bowled less because of his back. Um, who else have we got? Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of guys who have had back problems. David Warner stopped bowling because of his shoulder. Um, so so you have you have situations where I think because they're playing more top level cricket than ever before, and they're traveling more, and they're in buses, and they're in you know, um, um, and planes and uh, you know, hotel beds and all that sort of stuff more than uh, before. And, and, and I just think that there is more stress on batters' bodies and we haven't quite factored that in, I think, yet. I think it's probably easier on a batter's body, you know, in, in a pre- previous eras. Now, the next thing is that, and this is something that I've heard from India, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lay claim to this, I don't know who, who came up with this idea, uh, but Nikesh Raghani, uh, the BBC commentator who's uh, working with me on SEN, um, uh, brought it up with me recently, is that in the old days what would happen is you would bat in the nets, you do a little bit of fielding, then the bowlers would bat and the um, batters would have to go in and bowl part-time. So if there was any latent skill, like someone like Michael Bevan, or um, I'm trying to think, someone like Darren Lehman, who probably didn't bowl that much when he was a kid, um, uh, but, you know, some latent skill that was handy. You sort of became not, in Lehman's case, not quite an all-rounder. He's like on that verge of being an all-rounder, but I think Lehman averaged about five or six overs a game in one-day cricket, right? He certainly wasn't a non-bowler. I think that is certainly part of it as well. So now what happens is you have throwdowns and you have net bowlers everywhere. So... You know, there is a, you, you know, uh, even when I was with Scotland, you know, like our batters didn't need to bowl unless they wanted to, realistically. And, you know, it was 40 degrees in UAE. They weren't, they weren't bowling unless they thought they were going to get a chance of bowling in the game, right? Um, so Callum McLeod would bowl occasionally because he knew he might bowl. Uh, but whereas the other guys, not so much. So if you think about it from, from that kind of standpoint, every team now has multiple people who do throwdowns. Um, there is now, uh, there's never a shortage of net bowlers, um, ever again. And, you know, you'd rather face a good young 20 year old prospect than you would Darren Lehman bowling slow left arm sliders because he has to, right? So I think that there isn't as much work on bowling as there was. Um, the other thing is that I think that what we are seeing is cricket going towards specialization, um, more and more. So 
you know, we had, if you look at it, the last great era of all-rounders was the 80s. We have had all-rounders since then, and we've had incredible all-rounders like Callis and Stokes and, you know, Flintoff and Shakib. Um, you know, all coming through Ravage Adesia now as well. But the last great era that we had um, of, of all-rounders was, was the 80s. That's also the last era that cricket was amateur, right? Now everyone is working on their game professionally. I don't know, um, uh, Jake Weatherall, the um, South Australian player, he was talking about in the off-season working on his batting eight hours a day. That seems ridiculous to us. Like when I first read that, I was like, well, of course he's doing that. That's a job. Right, but cricketers, this is a new thing to cricketers. Uh, you know, working on your game at that level. If if you're if you're an all rounder and Jake Weatherall's spending eight hours a day on his batting, you can't do that as an all rounder, right? You, there's 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 a shortened amount of hours in the day, so you're going up against people who are you know someone like Benny Howell who spends all of his time well up to recently now he has started working on his batting more, but used to spend all of his time working on his slow balls and his variations and all of these sorts of things. Um, it's harder to go up against him if you're a multi-skill athlete. I think that's a, I think that's a fair um, part of that. And that's also why a lot of the wicket keepers, the skills aren't quite as good because they spend so much time on their batting. In the old days, um, wicket keepers used to spend all their time at training basically on wicket keeping. And then they, they do, you know, 20 minutes of hitting out in the nets. So I think there's a few different factors there. I think the bodies of the batters are different. They're also different at size athletes. Batters are getting bigger for T20 cricket, which uh, which is not necessarily helping them um, perhaps with their bowling. Um, so I think there's a lot of different parts of, of it. But it, it's a really, really good question. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Joe. No worries. Path. You there, Path? Uh, yeah, I'm there. So my question is uh, about, uh, you know, left-handed. Ravindra Jadeja was sent as the number five. I think it's it was because he was left-handed and they just wanted to screw up the ball as nine. So do you think that, you know, during the Ashes, if someone like Anderson is in the middle of a great spell and we know someone like David Warner can bat a little bit right-handed. So do you think that if he's in the middle of a great spell, someone like David Warner should go, okay, bowl to me right-handed. Is that even possible? No, I don't think so. I think you'd need to be... <laughs> I mean, think about this. Think about... It goes back to the previous question that, that Basker had path. What's the best way of putting it? David Warner has spent, David Warner has spent, what, how old is David Warner? 32. He spent a lot of his life as a left-hander. He did actually start as a right-hander, I, I suppose. But he spent the last 20 years perfecting his left-handed game to think that he's suddenly in the middle of a test match going to be able to use his right-handedness, which he uses very rarely. So you could see it from a bowling perspective. I could see a bowler trying something like this. I just can't see how a batter would ever do something of that level. I can't imagine that that... Like, we have seen that in T20, right? But we can, like, some yep. batsmen can think about it, like, it, it's a possibility in the future. Yeah, but T20 is completely different. A, your wicket doesn't mean as much. B, you're not doing it, you're not doing it at the start of the ball, so you're not giving um, a, a bowler... Like you, what you're talking about, you, he would actually need to take a new guard and bat right-handed to do it. Right, he can't just switch as Anderson's coming in um, because he would be giving Anderson too much of an advantage. Right, so he can't do that. Not regularly. He can do it once or twice as a surprise, you know, like Rishabh Pan has done. Um, but he can't do it consistently. So he'd have to be doing it right-handed. And also, the value of his wicket is so much higher in a Test match than it is in a T20 game. So, and he'd have to do it. He can't do it for one ball, can he? Like to get the advantage out of it, he'd need to do it for a whole spell. 
So let's say in a spell, a normal spell of Anderson, he faces anywhere between 15 to 25 balls. He'd have to bat for 15 or 25 balls against one of well, the greatest wicket taker that seen bowling has ever had with that, with something that he doesn't practice very often and can't practice that often. And, you know, isn't natural to him. I can't see, I mean, I, it would have to be someone like Warner who, um, uh, who is naturally right-handed or someone who's naturally left-handed doing it. And it would have to be, you would have to practice for a long time to be able to do it. But most right-handers can't face David Warner. Uh, sorry, Jimmy Anderson. Or, you know, uh, most right-handers don't handle the best bowlers in the world. So why would someone who's not practiced being a right-hander be able to switch over and do it? Did, did that move make sense? Like sending in Jadija at number five uh, because he's a right left-handed batsman? Like, Yeah, but, that, but that's completely different because... Jadeja is a left-handed batter. Do you know what I mean? He, that is what he does. That is what he has practiced doing. That is his speciality. Um, uh, you know, that's completely different than just making a, a, a batter do something different. Now, it's it's still a risk doing it with Jadeja. I think that's fair to say. He's, um, what, what are you doing? Uh, you are, I don't think his skill set is naturally suited to batting at five. Um, I think he's perfect for seven. He might be able to get away with batting at six, but five's a slightly different position. But they, they were just looking for someone to hang around and extend their batting line up a little bit. And in that case, Jadeja can do it. Jadeja is still, over the last, what is it, two or three years, averaging 50 in test cricket. David Warner has no average as a right-hander. Do you know what I mean? There's a huge difference between those two things. There's a huge difference between the risk you were taking with those two things. Beautiful. Thanks for your question, Path. Very interesting. Who have we got next? Raja. Hey, Jared. Uh, big fan of your work. Oh, thank you. Uh, especially, I love that Pujara video of yours, which came early in the club week. Uh, so, just wanted your reaction on Kevin Peterson's tweet, you know, where he stated that test matches would only be played by five teams in five years' time. Two questions from that. Does he not rate New Zealand uh, that highly? Or... Uh, and okay. I mean, is, uh, what do you think is the future of test cricket? To me, I think ODI cricket is the one format which is currently uh, under threat. So what is your opinion on this? There'll certainly be more than five teams playing in five years' time. I'm not even sure if I follow KP. I'm, I'm, I possibly do. Um, uh, I don't really look at his tweets. So I don't know the tweet specifically that you're talking about. Um, but no, there's there's too much money in test cricket for it to be abandoned. We're just getting to the point where the ICC is getting more power over it. They realize that it is a big money maker. Uh, I, I always equate uh, Test Cricket to the Big Mac. Uh, McDonald's can sell salads and Happy Meals might make them more money and they make most of their money off soda. But you, if you take away the Big Mac, I think there would be a, such an outcry from McDonald's people, even if it's no longer the biggest seller and maybe other burgers have gone past it and, and all those sorts of things. Test Cricket exists for a certain market and that market is increasingly older so maybe 35 to 80 those people have money those are you know those are people who are middle middle age and those are people who are retired um it's got value a value all around the world um it's for a tv company it's incredible like (laughs) I, we still haven't we, we haven't even got close to making the most money out of test cricket that we could and we could make a lot more money out of test cricket um you go to a tv exec and say we're going to get the same fans to be watching for five days straight and you know exactly what age group sex and demographic these fans are going to be in um <laughs> advertisers are like yes please 
We would like we would like that. That they don't feel the same with one day cricket. One day cricket's great as well in a different way. And T20 cricket is brilliant because obviously it gets more people and it gets younger people and you know a different kind of dynamic. But why would you give up the thing that you that that sells to a certain part of the marketplace? So we're not making money in New Zealand and West Indies and uh, Sri Lanka from Test cricket, but we could be if we sold it as a entire package. And eventually we probably will just because it will make more money for England, India, and Australia as much as anything else. If you sell it, if you sell everything bilaterally, you're fighting all the time for the good payday. If you sell it in one big package, everyone cashes in and that's what will eventually happen. Um, so, so yeah, I think, uh, I think he's wrong. Um, to be fair, I, I know KP a little bit, um, you know, we work together on talk sport and everything. He's not an expert in global cricket politics. Um, I don't think he, you know, I'm, I'm not ha- taking a piss out of him. Sorry, KP, if you're listening. Um, but he's not. That's not what he studies. He doesn't study the marketplace. He does talk to people a lot about this sort of stuff. He's, he's genuinely interested in this sort of stuff. But five years, is, um, if, if, that's what he, if that's what the tweet said, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, there's way too much money in Test cricket as it is currently played. It, it's too important to the infrastructure of India, Australia, and England to not bring teams over to play it if that makes sense. Um, you need a little bit of variety in their markets. They can't just keep playing each other. They try, but even if they play each other 50% of the time, they need the other 50%. It's the whole thing. It's a whole thing with the World Cup when, um, you know, when India's like, well, we'll leave world cricket and, you know, we'll take 80% of the wealth with us. And it's like, we well, won't take 80% of the wealth with you because um, people will still from India will still tune into the World Cup. There is still an interest in, in these other things, even if India is not playing it. It won't be as much. You know, India have 80% of, of the cricket wealth. And if you cut out just the international part of that, that's because they have to play other teams. A lot of India's wealth comes from playing other teams. And, and I think that KP probably hasn't factored that in. But also, as I said, there is, m- m- I was going to say millions, there is billions left on the table by not selling this as a league and selling it bilaterally. By selling it bilaterally, you open it up to eventually cancel, uh, to eventually become what KP says. I just don't believe that will happen because there's too much money that all these people would be leaving on the table. Um, uh, to, you know, uh, so I know I don't think that is, is the case. But great question, Roger. Thank you very much. Okay, who we got here? Are you? Hey, Jared. How you doing? I'm doing good. So my question is, you know, uh, we had a bit of a discussion on Twitter exchange, if you remember, about the uh, reverse swing and the ball that uh, we had discussed. So you said that because uh, on day four, you had mentioned that uh, the pitches will stay flat and, you know, and I did a bit of a slander about how Jasprit Gobra did the reverse swing. So during the toss also, Virat Kohli mentioned about or I think it was post-match about how he tried to make the ball heavy and people did not quite get it. But was it because India forced Jadeja to bowl it in the rough that it balanced the whole ball? Wait, I mean, that's what I tried to understand. So if you can explain a little bit more on how India were able to get that reverse swing despite uh, the pitch being flat and how why England were not able to. Well, no, the pitch being flat is probably more to do why they got reverse swing. So if you have a greener pitch, it can be quite hard to get reverse swing. Uh, I mean, there's a few different things about reverse swing. Firstly, about 80% of it is illegal. Um, Occasionally, you can get the ball to reverse swing without doing anything um, to the ball. But more often than not, that's not the case. Um, uh, There's kind of two kinds of reverse swing. There's getting the ball heavy on one side, which I don't think many international teams do anymore. So it was interesting that you used that word with Coley. 
Um, uh, I, I mean, he might have just been using it as a, as a shortcut. And then the other way is obviously roughing up one side completely and keeping the ball really, really dry. Um, if the ball's reverse swinging, Faf Duplessis was great at this. Every time, if South Africa was playing and the ball was reversing, Faf would drop the ball at his feet and pick it up so he could get his wet glove on it. Uh, there's a fun fact for everyone, um, which is also why I think people should have appealed for a hand of the ball every time he did that. But um, that's why we have those those laws in. Um, but yeah, I think it was a hot it was a hotter test than we've had. Uh, it, it, this has been an incredibly cool English summer. It's probably been the coldest English summer that I've ever had in how long have I been here? 11, 12 years. Um, uh, the pitches haven't been hard. They haven't been a flat. So uh, the ball has been kept in better shape. So it's been swinging for longer. Uh, I think these are particularly good batch of swinging balls. So if you're sw still swinging the ball at the 50 or 60 over mark, why would you even try and reverse it? Um, so I think we've seen that. Um, uh, I don't specifically know what they do. I've heard a lot of people say this Jadeja um, bowling it into the rough. Honestly, I'm not sure Jadeja tossing the ball up into the rough does anything compared to fielders throwing it into the rough part of the pitch. Um, a really interesting thing when, when the Indian fans were uh, upset about the England players using their spikes on the ball, uh, have a look in that particular test match, how often both teams were, uh, were throwing the ball into the rough um, when it comes in. It's incredible that these big, strong, strapping, fast bowlers from the boundary can bowl 90 miles an hour, suddenly can't get a throw in um, on the full. And these wicket keepers who have brilliant footwork when they're wicket keeping suddenly can't take a half a step forward to take a ball on the full and they're always running backwards, isn't it? Um, so I would say that probably had more to do with the ball um, uh, than, than Jadeja. I, I've never heard specifically anyone say that you – I can't th I can't think of a, an occasion where an international player has told me that a spin bowler has been bowling on the fifth day to get the ball to reverse because what if it doesn't reverse? Um, so, so what you want with Jadeja really is you want him to hit the rough as much as possible, but you also want him to be as unpredictable as possible. If he's trying to hit one side of the ball over and over again, which I, uh, he may have been, but if he is trying to do that, I wonder if that takes away from the other side of things. So I wouldn't have thought that. Also, I don't know, if you go back, Jadeja missed the rough a lot. I just can't imagine that he roughed the ball up any, anywhere near as much as India were, were doing it um, by throwing it in, um, by whatever else, what other means that they have to do. As I said, it's it's incredibly rare to make reverse swing happen um, uh, without, without um, mucking around with the ball, which is why England used the spikes earlier and why everyone in the world cricket throws the ball low. Um, I remember working with the cricket team and the umpires just going up and just going, enough with the throws, everyone. We know what you're doing. Just settle down. Um, it's quite a regular thing. Umpires know that everyone's doing it. Plus, not to mention, you know, strong fingernails. Um, uh, you know, not everyone goes to the lengths of sandpaper like the Australians did. But those balls, yeah. <laughs> I've said this before. The history of ball tampering is like so long and goes way before um, Pakistan re worked out reverse swing. Um but, yeah, I digress a little bit there. But um, it, it just doesn't always work. The conditions just do not always favour reverse swing. And we have more cameras than ever before, as England found out with the, um, with, with the, the shoe spikes. Um, uh, you know, there, there are just so many cameras out there. Teams are, especially since what happened with Australia, teams are being really, really careful. And that might be another reason that around the world we haven't seen quite as much reverse swing as we did before what Australia were doing. Everyone, no one wants to be the next Australia, do they? Um, but... Those conditions at the Oval perhaps were just perfect um, to help India get the ball to reverse. Does that all make sense? Yep, it does. Thanks for explaining it. Yep, no problem. Thank you. All right. Rohit Singh. Rohit, you've got a picture of a dog. 
Please bark for me. Oh, no. I'm not going to make a no-hit joke, Rohit. I might make a, a Rohit joke. All right, he hasn't come through. Uh, you can always try again, mate. Sometimes it's a bit touchy. I'll see who's next. Basil, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Um, what's your question? Okay, uh, in the last test match, India versus England test match, Chris uh, Wokes have been the best bowler of England like by a big margin. Even when others weren't able to do anything, he was able to make up something from that dead flat pitch. So what mm -hmm. exactly makes Wokes uh, a better bowler in the English conditions? He's always been terrific there. So one interesting thing I saw in that test specifically, the only two bowlers I would say that haven't tried the wobble ball repeatedly seem to be Mohamed Shami and Chris Wokes. Um, they are very bolt seam upright bowlers. Generally, what happens with the wobble ball is the, the movement is more surprising um, and the batter is completely, you know, put off by this and they can't, you know, it may... Uh, the Wobble Ball is an incredible ball. I will be doing a big project on it eventually, but I'm trying to get someone to chat to me about it. But essentially, it it brings in, because you're not sure if the ball is going to go in or away, it brings in the um, chance to be um, bold, which means you can't leave as many balls, which means you play more balls outside off stump, which means you're more likely to edge more balls because you don't know which way the ball's going, blah, 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 blah. Chris Wokes, to me, appeared to be bowling less wobble balls than everyone else. So he was bowling genuine seam up. And with that, he's obviously going to get more movement. So I would say he probably got wickets in a more traditional way, whereas everyone else was probably trying a little bit more the wobble ball um, uh, aspect would be my guess, but it's only a guess. It could just be that he was, he was well-rested. He hadn't played a test match in a year. He was eager because he's annoyed because he hasn't played a test match in a year. It could just be that Anderson and Robinson were tired and he looked better than them. Um, and you, he got good conditions. I think the most important spell for him was probably when he got Jadeja and Rahane. I thought yeah, uh, that was the one where, you know, before that the conditions were in his favor. But I thought that was a really good spell for him because at that stage no one else really looked like taking wickets. And for him to get two of them out um, uh, with a bit of help from the pitch, that was the first time that, that I, I kind of saw that. But yeah, it's, it's it, you know it's really interesting. But we can't underestimate rest. I'm doing a video on Jimmy Anderson, um, uh, which will come out probably during the the last test. Um, and I just don't think we can underestimate what an effect rest can have, especially on someone like Jimmy Anderson, who's quite old, or on Ollie Robertson, who is not used to having a bowl at this level. Um, there's a huge difference between bowling in first-class cricket and bowling in test cricket, especially if you're as talented as Ollie Robertson. So this is in many ways his first full-on test summer, even if he has certainly bowled a lot more balls in counter cricket. In counter cricket, he can, you know, gear down um, to gear four, gear three even at times if the conditions are in his favour. In test cricket, he's pretty much got to be at the top of his game at all times and he looks tired to me um not as tired as anderson but he certainly looks tired and those things happen i think siraj looks really tired as well uh for what it's worth i think he bowled some very poor spells in this particular test yeah and regarding wobblesim i just want to mention one thing uh lakshmi Badaji did an article on indian express regarding uh Umras that device fell and uh, he does a detailed analysis of it so if you're looking for someone to talk about that uh, yeah, so his was about reverse swing, wasn't it, and and how that works. No, uh, without giving away any names, I'm basically in conversation with the person who invented the wobble seam, or at least made it popular. 
and trying to get him on the podcast or not on the podcast. I'm trying to get him on video so we can help explain. I want I want to know how he came up about it. I've heard a few different stories and he hasn't quite told me which one is true yet. So I just I'd like to know how it came out. Um, and then I know sort of how it spread from there. I know how it spread through English cricket um, and how it spread through Australia, India, and, and New Zealand and those sorts of places. And and a lot of it is just to do with uh, once you bowl something a few times. And and uh, we have more close-ups of it. Bowlers are just watching it on the TV and picking it up, um, and then going to YouTube and looking for clips. Um, and so that's how it spread. But uh, yeah, I really want to get to it. But yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating delivery. I could talk for hours. I think I, I probably talk about it in every episode. But um, thanks so much for your question. Yeah. All right, Devdut. Yep. There he is. Excited. I um. I just wanted to ask about uh, the inclusion of Akshar in uh, the T20 World Cup squad. Uh, I just don't get why they have gone. Although I think that this is the first time India has gone into a T20 World Cup with a T20 team instead of an ODI team. But I was just thinking, why do you think Akshar was selected? Uh, because Jadija is there. It's not that they are going, both going to play together. And uh, if Jadija plays, it's not going to be like he's going to board his followers every every match. I don't know, but my guess is they think it's going to rag sideways, and so they want as many spin options as possible. Um, Akshar also gives them some batting, obviously not a genuine all-rounder probably um, at the international T20 level, but they, they have the ability. They have the ability if they want to bat Jadeja up the order and have Akshar at, you know, seven or eight, or um, uh, and then uh, if they need, you know, if they're going up against a team with a bunch of right-handers, uh, good luck. I suppose it's the best way of putting it on a spinning deck. Um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily understand it. But to be fair, I haven't spent a lot of time looking. I know a bunch of the T20 squads have come out in the last day. Um, I know Tamal Mills and Ashwin are really interesting to me. And I might even do a video or a podcast on um, some of the more surprising selections out there. But, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Akshar Patel. And they might also want to use him in a different role, you know, in, in the team. So, uh, it, look, it's very interesting to me. But yeah, I don't have a strong answer on that one. Thank you for your question. Oh, oh, definitely not Moody says, Jared, have you ever played the cricket management game, international cricket captain? Yeah, I got obsessed with that for a few years. Really, really liked it. I haven't played in a while. I'm not even sure if it's on my phone anymore, but yeah, absolutely love that game. Rohit, you're on mute. You've got your mute. Why don't you try now? There he is. Oh, God, I dropped my oh, phone. Oh, great. So you wanted me to bark uh, the last time. Either this or... Yeah, yeah. I didn't hear any barking. You don't have to bark. I can hear your voice now. Uh, what would you like to ask? My question actually had a couple, but uh, one was about uh, test cricket and the financials around, surrounding it, which uh, mm-hmm. relate to KP. The other was about statistics, cricket, uh, d- cricket data analytics. So, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah, just go ahead, ask the questions. I'll get to them as quick as I can. Start with the data analytics part. So, you, mm-hmm. you of course, that's your area where you promote a lot. And um, you were talking sometime ago about spatial cameras and having them would help. But of course, we're we're very far away from there right now. But so I'm assuming that right now, people is someone who manually puts the data into a database, and that's how we get the statistics. So uh, depends what you're talking about. The, all the ball by ball data is taken from ball by ball information, so that's easy enough to get. Um, the a lot of the pitch tracking stuff is obviously done by Hawkeye, but only Crickviz really have access to that. So a lot of the other companies like Opta, like Kadamba. Um, I'm missing about five others off the top of my head. They all do it manually. Uh, so they have grids and their analysts have to put it in. Then it's double-checked. I uh, don't know if I'll have to double-check it, but I know some of the Indian companies double-check it with their stuff. Um, and that's how we do that. But that's not 
but but that's like just what happens between the batter and the bowler that you know that's that's not measuring all the different things that we need to be measuring like for instance until Crickviz really got into it we didn't know we we were still saying oh he's tall so he must have a high release whereas now what we know is some guys have high releases and they're not particularly tall some guys have incredibly high releases because they are tall we now know that wingspan plays a part that collapsing at the curl at the crease plays a part um so there are heaps of things that we haven't measured and the spatial tracking stuff is not just for the shots that you play although it'd be very handy for that it's also for the field we're not tracking the field like at all yes that's what i was actually getting to the field no one's tracking the field no um, and you don't necessarily need the spatial cameras i mean the point i was making is that if someone's standing there, you would be able to know which person is standing where when they're fielding. And if you think about in the 90s when John D. Rhodes was standing in his position, Batsville would moan the ball goes anywhere near John D. Rhodes and start throwing their hands in the air, waving and saying, no, please, I'm not going to move until as long as the ball's near John D. Rhodes. Yeah, but that's subjective what you're talking about, right? It's fine. I'm not saying it, but to get that properly, all you need is one camera that probably costs about ten or $15,000. Uh, or an algorithm. Back where the fielders are. Yeah, because, because for instance, John T. Rose was a really, really obvious great fielder, you know, because he moved so fast and because we made a big deal about him and because he, did, he dived, he did things that uh, other people didn't do. Does that make him a better fielder than Michael Clark or Ravage? Well, oh, actually, let, let me stick with Michael Clark. Michael Clark has one of the highest run-out rates in uh, ODI cricket, and I think Yufraj Singh might as well, right? And the reason that those two have high run-out rates, my guess is because they're left-handed, and in one-day cricket, you can't track where the fielders are all the time, and you hit the ball to the right of someone. Um, sorry, you hit the ball to the left of someone, and you take off, and those guys run you out because that's their left hand, right? Michael Clark, or um, maybe not uh, Yuvraj, but Michael Clark, who was a very good athlete, might be worth more in the field than John T. Rhodes because if he's fielding at points, he has a direct line of sight to the non-striker's end stumps as well in a way that John T. Rhodes didn't. John T. Rhodes had to turn around. The other thing is that John T. Rhodes was brilliant at getting to the ball, but was not a brilliant thrower at the stumps. Not just because he's right-handed, but just he wasn't. Ricky Ponting hit the stumps far more than John T. Rhodes, and that's just, that's just going off the top of my head, right? That, you, know, you know, that's just my memory, so I could be wrong with that. So again, straight away, that gets more complicated with what you're saying. The other thing is that there are a lot of brilliant fielders in the world who are not particularly brilliant athletes. So someone, um, someone like um, Alan Border wasn't, I wouldn't say was a brilliant athlete, but Alan Border obviously read the game very, very well and he could get himself in a position where he needed to be uh, before the ball was hit because he was reading the game, right? Which is something John T. Rhodes may or may not have done. Um, uh, but, you know, John T. Rhodes and Andrew Simons, their fielding comes from athleticism um, and maybe someone like Alan Border's fielding came more from body positioning, right? We don't know any of this. Because we don't have a camera, this could all be tracked. We could have the percentage of times that that pay, players are hitting uh, that are hitting the stumps. So what I want to know is, I write a, a fielder at point, the ball goes to them, and um, they have a, a direct line of sight for a run out. What percentage of time do they run the person out? And we have we have ten thousand other throws from point. How often does 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 a player hit? Does John T. Rhodes hit more than another player or less? Is there a player who hits at ninety eight percent of the time? Uh, does Jadeja, when he's throwing in from the boundary, hit the stumps more than other people? Does it just feel like that because, again, he's left-handed, and when he hits the stumps, he maybe has a half a metre meter um, advantage over anyone else because the players, I think, uh, are taking him on because they haven't realised it's him out in the outfield. 
These are the things that we can track. And once we have 10,000 throws from point, 10, you know, 20,000 hits to long on, those sorts of things, we'll be able to track fielding on uh, a hugely scientific level. And at the moment, we're just going, he looks good and we hope he's good. Um, and, and that's what I'm talking about. What I was saying was that what you could do, though, is that if there is a fielder at one position, you can then, knowing that he's standing at a position, see what the impact is on the bowler, because every team struggles with finding who the right bowler is. So if a fielder that we and the credit goes to a bowler for that's falling an outstanding spell or bowling a pathetic spell, um, but a lot of it could be influenced because of a person position. Yeah, but you can only tell that. You can only tell that with the advanced stats that I'm talking about. You can't tell that by just if John T. Rowe, if 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 AB DeVoos is going to feel point every single game for your bowlers, you're not going to be able to tell that unless your bowlers get traded to another team and you do an advance. And and then you'd need them to have played 30 to 50 games with AB DeVoos and 30 to 50 games without him. Right. We don't need to go to that level. The technology is there um, to be able to do that way, way beforehand. It, it's available to teams now. I've talked to teams and leagues about this. Big Bash were thinking about doing this three or four years ago. The ICC did all that stuff with bat sensors and everything, where it's like you could actually help move cricket forward, I think, in a better direction if you did this as well. Um, so, you know, I've talked to people. Everyone's aware of this. Uh, it's ridiculous. We have been tracking where batters have been hitting the ball for hundreds of years, and we have not tracked where we have put the fielders. So we know we, get, we, get, we can tell you where some of W.G. Grace's innings were, and we can't tell you where the field were. And, you know, when, as an analyst, I can tell you the first thing is like, generally what a wagon wheel tells you is where the field was. Right, that's what a wagon wheel is telling you. If you've got like five guys in a line on the offside, chances are that uh, you know even a very good offside player probably won't go through the offside as much that day, right? And so it's it's a ridiculous situation that we're in that we can uh, that we can fix, um, and we just haven't got there. So yeah, um, thank you very much for your question. Um, I'm just going to have to move on uh, to a couple of other people, but thanks for coming through. Luckily, we finally heard from you. Uh, just having a look here, you can't. How you doing? Oh, I'm good, Jared. Uh, first of all, your polite inquiries have been great. So oh, thank you. Forward to the future, yeah? uh, and the question was about players' career management. Uh, how players are successful now has changed from how it was before, right? So an Ali Robinson can lose, a, lose out on a career potentially because of a tweet. But even before, there were times like uh, when Patrick Patterson, uh, you know, lost, lost Thatcher, even someone like an Upul Tharanga, I mean, not Upul Tharanga, Upul Chandan, I think, he's just doing something normal now. So how does organization get better in the in the future or in the present so that how things get better in the future, basically? Well, I mean, it's always going to happen. You're always going to have talented athletes who don't make it for many different reasons. That's never going to go away. I think that what teams need to do is better understand the needs of modern the modern world. I don't think suddenly telling all your players to go and delete all their old tweets um, after years of them putting up dodgy tweets is the best way of doing things, for instance. Um, the, I think a lot of players have been left to their own device, devices. But at the same time, if you want to play professional sport and you are saying a bunch of things online, it is absolutely no different to uh, an accountant or uh, any job people Google you these days. So anyone who is, uh, who is using social media and is being loose, it's eventually going to come back to you. So I, I don't think it's any different for Ollie Robinson um, than it is for anyone else. But where, where it works for teams is, 
I think that education is obviously the key from a very, very young age. What you put online will come back to you. The food that you put in your body is important. The way that you look after yourself, the way that you talk to people, the way that you deal with the press, all these things matter in your career. Um, But players also have to understand that this is part of the, you know, as they're coming through, they have to understand that this is part of uh, being a professional athlete is um, looking after yourself. I, I wrote a piece ages ago about forward um, Alarm when, when he made his comeback. And I'm a huge fan of him because I think he's a phenomenal cricketer. And most of the reasons that he didn't play um, for Pakistan were out of his control. Um, Pakistan had a very strong middle order. They'd taken a chance with a younger player. Uh, they, uh, they had uh, overlooked him, um, uh, you know, uh, stupidly when they could have developed him in other positions. But also at a certain point, and I've had this conversation with many professional athletes before, it's like if what you're doing isn't working, you have to look at what you are doing. Could forward alarm have gone to the Pakistani selectors and said, look, maybe I do you want me to try opening the batting? Do you want me to try batting at three? Where's the position that you're most worried about filling? And I think we're seeing now like, um, Pakistan missed out on a talent and 90% of that problem is theirs, but 10% is forward alarm. He's the one who's actually missed out on the career. And I know lots of cricketers who have, you know, that quite often come to me, you know, as an analyst and talk to me about these sorts of things. And I was like, well, you're not getting picked because of this. This is within your control. The rest of it is not within your control. Um, Benny Howell is a perfect example of for many years, there was a stigma about Benny Howell. Um, uh, that hopefully over the last couple of years has, has been able to come across, but that, that he was a difficult person. Well, Benny Howell has ADHD. It's not, it's a treatable thing. Um, his teammates are aware of it. They're fine with it, but he was seen as difficult. Again, that teams can't allow those sorts of things to happen. You need to, they need to be properly professionally won. They need to be, have proper support. So I think maybe going forward, that is where we're going, but every player whether, whether it's their training, whether it's their social media, whether it's what they put in their body, whether it's what they message to their friends, has to know from a very young age that, that those sorts of things are going to come out. I mean, that's the world that everyone lives in, not just professional athletes. And how about things uh, at a later stage of their career? Like, say, when they're leaving uh, and, you know, reintegrating into regular life or something else, can there be something systematic done so that People don't uh, go down the cliff. Yeah, so um, Australia and England have unions. AC, um, I think New, Ze- New yeah, the New Zealand has um, the union as well. Um, so there's also FICA, obviously. Look, it's tough because <laughs> you've got to remember how many actual professional cricketers there are. Um, so at the moment in the world, I think my number's right, there's about three and a half to 4,000 um, professional cricketers in the world. Uh, and the turnover is really brutal. So at the international level, the turnover is not so brutal, but at the domestic level, it's quite brutal. You, you, a lot of these people are entering the workplace without skills, um, without education in some point, uh, places. Uh, they're, you know, they invest their money in things. If you go to LinkedIn and look up your favorite first-class cricketers, m- so many of them will have failed businesses over, over the time. Um, uh, you know, sometimes multiple. It's a graveyard there. It's it's really quite sad. I'm not sure what this isn't a cricket problem. Was it? Isn't it? Ninety percent of any NBA athletes are broke within five years of retirement or something. You've got to remember they get a huge amount of money, and they live on their life 
like I can see the ones who are going to struggle and I can see the ones who are going to do good coming from a mile off. The ones who at like 30 and 32 suddenly buy massive houses, it's like, no, you needed to buy your big house at 25 and have paid it off by now. Um, if you're still paying off a massive mortgage, then if you're and you're 32, you can injure your knee and never be the same player you are by, 20, by 33. Um, and so it, it is tough. Uh, to be honest, I think, some there's obviously places where it's been better and where it's been worse. I think in Patrick Patterson's case, there's the mental health issue as well. Um, I, I don't know if he's been diagnosed. Um, uh, I, I can't remember. Um, you have to go back and read some of Barrett's work, but clearly there are mental health issues with him. There are mental health health issues with other players. There are former, you know, very big name test players who are um, uh, on drugs. There are very big name test players who are, um, you know, alcoholics. Um, you know, they have all the same problems as everyone else, except for the fact that quite often they, in their thirties to forties, they're suddenly like, what do I do with my life? I'm defined by this thing I no longer do. And there's a drop off. And that's a thing for all professional athletes. And I don't think it's something that we're particularly good at handling. Um, and we possibly have never been particularly good at handling in sport, but it's, it's a truth and it goes on every day, sadly. And, uh, the player unions, part of their reason that they exist is to try and help these people. Um, I, I don't know if the, the Australian one does, but the England union has like a hotline, uh, where players who are struggling can call them up at any times, but you know, we're still going to get stories like Chris Lewis and Stuart McGill and, uh, Patrick Patterson. That's, that's not going to, that's not going to stop. That's, that's part of society, I think, as much as anything. It's not a normal, it's not a normal shift. It's not like, you know, it's not like a sea change for one of us. We, uh, most of us by the age of 30, 35, have a pretty good idea of what we're trying to do for a living and are pushing forward. They've already done the thing that's going to define them. And more often than not, unless you're going to be, you know, Imran Khan or Mike Whitney, there's a random one. Um, you know, most people... Are, uh, uh, most athletes will have done the thing that defines them by the age of 35 and then they enter this weird world. Um, you don't get paid a lot to be a coach. Commentary work is really hard to find. It's a, uh, you know, I talked to a player recently, you know, again, a really well-known player who's, you know, coaching at a, at a high school. It's a good high school, don't get me wrong, good facilities and everything. But he was like, you know, I want to be coaching an international team and I'm coaching a high school. That's got to play with his mind. He's a you know, he was a brilliant cricketer. He believes he can be a great coach. Um, it's tough. It is tough. There's no easy way of, of doing this. Um, it was much easier in the days of amateur uh, because the, the drop-off wasn't the same. And now, um, you know, if you got to the age of 30, 32 as an amateur, it's like, oh, maybe I should start, you know, go and find another job for a little while and, and build something. Or, or they already had jobs and they just took their, their job more seriously. So uh, I got no answers for you there. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you so much. No worries, mate. Gora, uh, this is going to be the last question. So, you know, uh, make it count. This is the big one. Day five, after tea. Yeah, so uh, so my question is about the team selection which we have seen for the T20 spots for the different teams. And uh, one thing which is very clear is that India have taken a different weight from all the other teams. Like, England has gone with, like, quick fire pacers like they have Mills, they have Jordan, they have put like all one for keepers. And they have three other swing bowlers in current Wokes and Billy. But what we have seen with India is like only three proper pacers, uh Shami, Bumra and Dubi. And then they have Hardik as a fourth option with five spinners. 
so have india get the pitch wrong or or have england get the pitch wrong or they are just backing their strength so what's happening uh, I, so i'm a bit yeah I, ha- I haven't looked at the full squads but if you've said if what you've said is correct then i would say both teams are just backing their strengths there um if you look, we know that India has this plethora of incredible test talent uh, when it comes to fast bowling. But, you know, essentially, Boovy and Boomerah are kind of their only front. Uh, it Was it Shami you said was the other one as well? Is that right? So Shami, Shami's not an elite T20 bowler. Um, his record's actually surprisingly poor. I think he's getting slightly better. It's weird because I think he should be much better than he is. Um, but... You know, Boomer and Boovy, obviously, absolute elite bowling talent uh, when it comes to seam bowling. Um, but if you look at England, you know, I mean, Mills is probably the best death bowler uh, in the world. Uh, uh, they, they, they like, uh, sorry, not best death bowler, the most economical um, death bowler in the world. He hasn't played uh, as much in the, in the IPL, so hasn't quite been tested at the highest level and hasn't played for England for a while. But phenomenal record. I've been saying for ages that you have a couple of bad IPL games and a couple of bad big bash games and everyone turned their back on him and he got better. Um, uh, Jordan, Jordan is there, obviously, because of his batting and his fielding as much as his bowling as well. He's part of their plans. Um, and then Wood is, you know... I don't think we've even ever seen the best of Wood in a T20 game, but we know that, sorry, T20 season, but we know in individual games that he's absolutely phenomenal um, and he'll be able to blow through some teams. So I think if you have those players, um, it makes sense to sort of back that skill. England don't have, you know, England don't have the the same sort of, was it five spinners that India have, but they have their spinners, um, uh, covered probably enough as they want them covered. So I think it's just a strength thing. I really, I don't think you should be picking, especially from your top, maybe your 15th player should be a player that is completely conditions based, right? Um, it gives you some flexibility with the conditions if you've misread the pitches, but yeah, which, which, which might be what Ashwin is weirdly enough in this, or actually even, um, in the Indian squad. Um, Whereas I think realistically what you have to do is obviously you need a balance of players, but you need the what you think is the best 13 to 14 players uh, to pick your squad from. And if that is, you know, if I can't think of another player who's going to have the same kind of impact of, as, as Mills um, uh, for, for England. So, you know, there's obviously guys like, you know, Lynn Tosh and Parkinson and, you know, uh, other, you know, Benny Howell and all those sorts of people. But, but I, they've been, you know, they might be thinking, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, just spitballing because I haven't, I haven't had a look at their squad or their games of recent times. But if they're thinking our big thing is being able to close out at the death, then Mills is the person that they need in that situation. So, um, yeah, it, it makes sense. I, I think what you really want for these tournaments is experienced players. It's very rare that you win World Cups with a bunch of youngsters. You can have a couple. Um, but they have to be, if, you, if you've got a youngster, they have to be like a 10-year youngster, if that makes sense. So someone that you're sure is going to be playing in 10 years' time. Um, and and you also don't win a lot of World Cups with, you know, a replacement-level talent. So, you you, you know, um, you know Australia with someone like um, Xavier Doherty in 2012 or Ashton Agar, those sorts of players, I don't, yeah, yeah, the team has to be so brilliant around them 
So what you really want is your best 14 most talented players as best that you can balance them out. Obviously, if they're all wicket keepers, that's not handy. But as best that you can balance them out, um, I think is your best chance of winning a global tournament. It's not easy. And T20 is such a fluky tournament as well. Like, I think we've been, we've probably been lucky enough that the West Indies have won a couple of tournaments when they've been clearly the best team. Um, but uh, it, the best team isn't always going to win. Uh, the best team isn't going to win anything consistently, but in T20 cricket, even less so. Um, there's so much fluke um, a, um, around and luck involved in T20 cricket. So I think in that case, you really want your best players. And I think that's what both teams have done. But thank you very much for your question. And thank you for everyone uh, who has asked questions today. Uh, thank you to the Patreon people who sent them in. If you've just come on to the end and you want to listen to the whole podcast, it will be up on Red Inca in a couple of days. We'll eventually put it up on YouTube. But uh, yeah, if you are on YouTube um, and you want to check it out, we've done some pretty cool videos of recent times. My Boomer one, one that I've done, I've got a video on Anderson and Coley, hopefully, and some other great stuff. We've already started working on some IPL stuff as well. Uh, Double Century, we're going to put up a special bonus episode of Afghanistan for Double Century, where I actually do talk a little bit more about the Afghanistan issue, uh, but it's kind of talking about their story and, and where they are and what might happen next. And then the final episode of Double Century for season three will be Zimbabwe beating England. So if you want to go listen to that. And if anyone likes my writing, you can find me on Substack, uh, wickets.substack.com. I think that's it. I try and write every day of the test match if, uh, uh, when I'm covering a test match, and I write once or twice a week. Generally, one of those articles is paid, which you can pay for, obviously, and the other one comes free. But thank you all uh, for listening and asking your questions. It's been a fun time, and I'll be back on Spotify Green Room next week, and I'll see you all then. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.